It's time for our regular segment with barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. It's Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan. Morning, Michael. How are we doing? Hey, I'm doing great. Always good to be here. Always look forward to a Thursday where we learn new things about the functionings of our justice system. What's on the agenda for today? Uh, the first case on the agenda is a uh, small claims case out of Abbotsford. Um, and first of all, I should pause to say what it means to be in small claims court, what you could sue there for. Um, the way it works now in BC is for very tiny claims, like up to $5,000, they can be done with a thing called the Civil Resolution Tribunal. It's kind of like a PayPal dispute mechanism online with like telephone and video hearings. And then for claims up to between five dollars and $35,000, those are done in provincial small claims court with a judge. And beyond that, you'd be in Supreme Court if you're suing for more money than that. And this particular case is a, is a case uh, with a, a former patient suing a dentist from Abbotsford with a very unfortunate last name for a dentist. Yeah, it looks like uh, Nal Rot, <laughs> so, hmm. which is a very unfortunate name. Um, and she was uh, made this claim against the dentist for allegedly performing unnecessary and excessive treatment and negligence and battery and just all sorts of uh, things which caused her, it's clear from the judgment, serious trauma. She was traumatized to the extent she wouldn't leave her house other than to go to work because of how her teeth looked like at the end of the day and had all kinds of um, problems as a result of this treatment. And indeed, the dentist involved, uh, there was also a complaint made to the BC College of Oral Health Professionals, to which the dentist made a bunch of admissions, including admissions that uh, things like he provided treatment that fell below the college's expectation standard by providing excessive and comprehensive restorative treatments in a single session rather than over multiple sessions. One of them was that he agreed that he billed for treatment uh, when the need for treatment was not supported by records and went on. He made six admissions there of misconduct. Uh, and that was the background. And the very unfortunate thing is that the former patient here sued in small claims court on her own without a lawyer helping. And I should say small claims court is designed for that sort of, right? Yeah. The idea is kind of a simplified process. You can get the forms online. It's meant to be kind of accessible, right? But, Proof is still required of things, right? And somebody without legal training may not re know what might be admissible and what might not be admissible. Yeah. And here, this poor woman who had this terrible experience um, was not represented at trial. And the judge described that as she struggled to advance her case, found testifying difficult, was often overcome by emotion about the harm she had suffered. She was not a legal expert and didn't know about the rules of evidence. And so, for example, she showed up and she had a letter from her new doctor providing, I, I suppose, information about uh, what had to be done to try to fix some of these problems and perhaps commentary about whether what was done by that uh, the doctor in Abbotsford was appropriate or not or fell below the required standard of care. That's not admissible, mm -hmm. right? You know, you, you, you can't just show up in court with a letter from somebody who isn't there saying, well, this person says this and that, yeah, right? Yeah. There's a process. You've got to call an expert, and the judge would need that, right? Because when you're suing for alleged um, negligence in providing professional uh, services like this, the, the judge needs to have some evidence about, 
you know, what is the standard of care, right? What would be expected from a, a dentist acting reasonably? And did this fall below that standard of care? Did it amount to negligence, right? Yes. Um, and here, the, the dentist didn't even testify at the trials. He couldn't be asked any questions about that, right? And so you had these admissions that he had made to the uh, oral health professions college, and you had the woman testifying about the terrible result of all this, but without some evidence uh, about well, what would be expected and did falling below expectations cause the problem, the judge was left not being able to be satisfied of many of the things that would be necessary for the claim to uh, succeed on all of the possible grounds. I must say, reading it, it's even questionable about whether the thing should have been in small claims court to begin with, given mm-hmm. the seriousness of what went on here. Yes. And for example, the admissions that the judge found he could rely upon, uh, some of them were ambiguous. For example, one of them, the doctor admitted that he, this is the language, billed for treatment when the need for treatment was not supported by records. Hmm. And so part of the problem was, well, did you do treatment that was unnecessary to bill more? Or was your record keeping poor? Good point. <laughs> it's kind yeah. of hard to tell. Yeah. Right? Maybe you did necessary treatment but didn't document it properly. Yeah. And so the judge was left with, well, how am I supposed to determine this? There is no admissible evidence. And the judge did find that the uh, dentist had engaged in assault or battery. And that's essentially like doing something to a person without their consent, right? And that's mm. an important element. You know, your doctor or dentist doesn't get to just pin you down and do whatever they want. No. They have to get your agreement to do it. Uh, and so, for example, the judge found that uh, they accepted uh, the plaintiff's evidence regarding her lack of consent to 19 of her teeth being treated by Dr. Narrot on March 18th and found her evidence to be reliable and credible. Um, and so the, the judge, without the benefit of some of the evidence that you would hope would be there about the issue of negligence, was able to find uh, that. Uh, there was also the person made a the patient made a claim that she was had lingering and substantial fear that her bodily integrity was violated uh, while she was sedated for many hours. Hmm. Um, the judge was unable to found that that he was sedated for she was sedated for many hours, uh, but um, and the judge said the evidence uh, of the plaintiff about being left alone in the care of the doctor is compelling and highly concerning. Uh, but is not sufficient to support a legal finding that uh, the doctor uh, caused harm while she was under sedation. And so, once again, it's sort of an example of where it would have been much more desirable had there been some help for her in uh, advancing her claims. With all that being said, the judge concluded that they were satisfied that the plaintiff had established compensable degree of emotional suffering and damage as a result of the misconduct which had been proven. Um, the judge had to ultimately conclude that the judge was not finding the process of sedation was negligent, but rather the plaintiff uh, would not have been sedated for so long, but for the unauthorized and negligent dental work, um, and uh, concluded that the plaintiff's fear and uh, fear and feelings of violation were manifest at trial and through her evidence. Um, and so the result of all this, uh, the judge concluded that despite the lack of evidence that would have been desirable, uh, concluded that the doctor had acted in a high-handed and reprehensible manner towards the patient uh, who was vulnerable due to sedation and relying entirely on his experience and integrity. The result of all that, given uh, which sounds like a very traumatic experience, uh, the other problem was she didn't present in a clear way 
evidence of all possible financial loss. That's another thing which would be necessary. Sort of like, let's get pay stubs and you know time missed and so on and presented in a, in a way that would be helpful to the judge. The result of all of this is that the uh, award ultimately was uh, only for $15,551, which included uh, some lost income and general damages uh, in a uh, a circumstance where the uh, amount that could have been awarded was in that court up to $35,000. And so it's an example of, well, the small claims process is simplified and judges do try to assist people, right, and making uh-huh. sure that they sort of do what's required. They're not a substitute for having a lawyer help you. Uh, and uh, I must say, as I read the case, it, uh, the overarching uh, impression left is uh, just what a shame uh, that uh, there wasn't some additional legal help for the plaintiff to ensure that there was uh, evidence that would allow the judge to assess things like the negligence claim in a more fulsome way. Uh, and uh, all of that is, of course, in the context where the uh, dentist in question has made admissions of misconduct to the uh, oral health profession. It just uh, turned out to be the case with respect to many of them. There was ambiguity about what exactly the admissions amounted to, and so that wasn't enough for the judge to be able to be satisfied, at least in part of the claim uh, made here. So uh, there's the outcome. <laughs> Uh, and uh, I guess the uh, takeaway there would be uh, you may want to make some uh, inquiries with respect to the uh, College of Oral Health Professionals to see the background of uh, a dentist that you're dealing with. Uh, at least, uh, you know, that uh, part of it in this case uh, has been uh, admitted, uh, and so uh, hopefully the uh, college will do its job and the public will be protected in the future. So that's the case of the uh, dentist and the small claims action. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Legally speaking, we'll continue right after this. Back on the air with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers as Legally Speaking continues. Up next on the docket for today, it says, Deadline for extradition paperwork missed and provision to allow for more time unconstitutionally vague with no standard to apply. Sounds complicated. Let's dive in. (laughs) Indeed. So this is a, a, a BC case. The background of it is that it was an application by the United States government to seek the extradition of a man from uh, British Columbia, uh, seeking that he be uh, sent uh, to stand trial uh, in the United States, in uh, Georgia, it would appear. Uh, And the essential allegation was that uh, some drugs were allegedly shipped from uh, the U.S. government, believes, by the accused, uh, to a person described as a sailor uh, living in the great state of Georgia, two U.S. sailors residing in Georgia, uh, and the sailors died of a drug overdose shortly after they received packages in the mail. That's the basics of the case. Which brings us to how does extradition work? Well, the way it works is that a country we have an extradition treaty with can make a request to the Canadian authorities, Canadian government, to arrest and send the person somewhere else to stand trial, which is, of course, a pretty dramatic thing, being arrested in one country and shipped to another country for a trial. Uh, and the way that uh, there's a time, uh, some time requirements in the legislation. And one of the requirements is that when after somebody is arrested uh, on a provisional basis based on a request from another state, and here the U.S. made this request, and so there was a warrant uh, and the uh, suspect in British Columbia was arrested, 
there's a requirement that the uh, country seeking to have the person extradited must provide supporting documentation no more than 60 days after the, quote, provisional arrest, close quote, right? Uh, and so the man was arrested, clock starts ticking. Uh, and then what happened is the Canadian Department of Justice erroneously calculated the time requirements and told the United States Department of Justice uh, that the documents were due by July 25th, 2022. That was wrong. Hmm. <laughs> they were due by July 23rd, 2022. Okay. So they were two days late. Uh, and so then what happened is that the Canadian Department of Justice made an application to a judge under Section 14.2 of the Act that deals with extradition. And that's the section which was in question here. That section says, on application of the Attorney General, a judge may extend a period referred to in subsection 1. So a judge may extend the time period. The legal argument was, well, hold on a minute. It doesn't say how that decision is supposed to be made. In what circumstances should a judge extend the time period? When might you not extend the time period? What should be taken into account, right? Is it kind of the length of the judge's foot? Well, that's a legal requirement. There, the uh, It's a principle in Canada, it's a charter principle, uh, that uh, it's contrary to Section 7 of the Charter if a legal provision is unconstitutionally vague. And the way courts have interpreted that is sort of a test about, is there sufficient direction in the legislation that would permit some kind of a legal debate or notice to somebody about what might or might not happen, right? We don't want to live in a topsy-turvy world where kind of what happens kind of depends on whatever a judge might feel like. That's not helpful, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so the problem with this section is it doesn't say... It just says a judge may give more time. It doesn't say when or in what circumstances. Like it could say, well, if the other side's tried its best or, uh, you know, if the, you know, bearing in mind the efforts made or reasons for being late or how important the case might be, something <laughs> that somebody could sort of get a grip on and say, okay, well, how long can you keep me in jail uh, without providing any paperwork? Uh, you know, the legislation says 60 days. When can you get more, right? It does have to be the case is really complicated. If it got lost in the mail, what? And so the judge hearing this case concluded that uh, that was, in fact, unconstitutionally vague because there's no indication of sort of when a judge may or may not or when they should or shouldn't give more time uh, than what is required, right? It says 60 days, and if you don't do it in 60 days, the legislation provides that the person's to be discharged, like let them out, right? Some other country has said arrest this person. They've done so in Canada, and no paperwork has showed up in two months. The person's in prison. Um, the presumption of that section, well, that's it then. You can go. Um, and so that's what happened here. Uh, the conclusion was that uh, that section, with no other guidance, uh, was inconsistent with Section 7 of the Canadian Charter. Um, and there was then debate about you know, well, should that have effect right away? Should the government have more time to uh, do something about this? And ultimately, the judge said no. Um, you know, the, the section as it stands without that unconstitutionally vague judge may extend that time period provision, that doesn't stop it from working. It just means you better get calculate your time correctly and you better have your paperwork ready in two months if you're holding somebody in prison uh, seeking to have them extradited somewhere else. And so the net uh, result of this is unconstitutionally big section, 
uh, can't be a time period extension. You missed it by two days because you got the date wrong. And uh, that'll be the end of this extradition. Uh, and we'll have to see whether anything else comes of it. But uh, I guess the outcome or the takeaway is read this action carefully. Make sure you calculate your time period. And if you're going to grant uh, have a legal provision, you've got to make sure that it's clear so that there can be a legal decision made, not just saying may do something with no idea when you might or might not uh, choose to do that. Um, so that's the uh, latest on extradition from British Columbia. Our next story is an interesting one, and it's a couple of um, intersecting issues that we've discussed in the past, including an economic story that we've covered to no end, and that is the explosion in values in the property market means that a titanic sum of wealth has essentially been created fairly recently here in British Columbia, and it has been accumulated by those who hold title to equity in residential properties. This next case touches on how that's dealt with. You're exactly right. Uh, and so this case, like many cases these days, involves a, uh, where there's a new relationship and adult children and sort of, well, what's to happen with assets, right? Yes. Um, that's complicated. Uh, and the background here uh, is that uh, this couple uh, who had uh, been together for 18 years, it was a second relationship uh, for each of them. Um, they had uh, they met at a grocery store in Edmonton back in 2003 and began uh, dating. Um, and uh, eventually, sadly, the, uh, uh, the woman uh, here passed away at age 76, uh, and she was survived by her partner of 18 years. Things got complicated uh, because uh, with respect to the ownership uh, of the condominium they were living in. And the background of that uh, was that uh, sometime a short time after they uh, met, uh, the couple decided to uh, purchase a property uh, in Kelowna, uh, and they originally decided to purchase a uh, mobile home to live in. Uh, and in order to fund that, uh, the fellow who was the plaintiff in this case um, withdrew uh, almost all of his RRSP savings, producing a uh, hundred thousand uh, dollars to contribute to the purchase of this home. Mm-hmm. Uh, the couple uh, were moving into the home, and the this becomes more complicated. Uh, the uh, uh, partner who passed away, um, she was the recipient of spousal support from her pri- previous relationship. Hmm. Um, and the spousal support provisions that she had agreed to provided that uh, the amount of support she was getting could be uh, revisited um, if she cohabited with another person. Uh, and she didn't want her spousal support to stop. Ah. And so she told her current partner, well, I want to have the uh, mobile home put in my name alone because I don't want my ex-husband to find out that I'm cohabiting with somebody. Hmm. Uh, And the evidence was she was, quote, somewhat strong-willed, close quote, and he agreed. Uh, Things went along for a while. They decided to sell that property eventually and purchase a uh, condominium. Condominium went up in value. Uh, they decided to sell that. Uh, and then they eventually bought a one-bedroom condominium uh, together. Uh, but with all of those homes, and for the same reason, uh, the uh, female spouse put um, all of them in her name alone. Uh, unfortunately, uh, she also had some other challenges, including it would appear an unfortunate gambling habit uh, where she would go to the casino and lose uh, substantial amounts of money, uh, which were being funded by uh, her partner, who was uh, still working until a, uh, a relatively late uh, in the game uh, to keep funding her gambling habit. Mm. Now, 
here's what happens. Um, she had some health problems. She was a smoker. I guess she realized she had some health challenges. And before she passed away, and without telling uh, her partner, uh, she both created a will, leaving all of her asset, leaving her assets to her adult children, and went and transferred the condominium into joint tenancy uh, with her and her adult, um, I think it was her daughter, children. Um, and then what happened is she passed away. And when you have an asset in uh, as joint tenants. Uh, then what happens is that the uh, the property automatically transfers to the other person you're a joint tenant with, leaving the partner with nothing. <laughs> and very quickly, uh, the adult children of the woman who passed away promptly told him to vacate the premises and get out. And so he had to leave his condominium. And that was the basis of the lawsuit. Now, the thing, and so on one hand, you if you look at sort of the, the legal arrangement there, you say, okay, well, it's a joint tenancy. She was the sole owner. She passed away. Her adult children get it. Uh, too bad for him, <laughs> right? That would be the sort of the, the legal consequence of that. Hmm. But as I said, it was equity to the rescue. And this idea that we've touched on before, which is the idea of a trust and a resulting pre- and a presumptive trust. And the way that works is that when you give somebody uh, money, it's presumed that you're not giving them the money as a gift, unless there's evidence to show that this was a gift, like a letter saying, you know, this is a gift, for example. But there's a presumption uh, that you're giving the person the money in trust. They're holding it for you, not that you intended to gift it to them, right? Like if you show up at the valet and hand the valet your keys, the presumption is not you gifted your car to the valet, the presumption would be, you know, the valley's holding your car for you while you have dinner, right? So yeah. um, that's how the law works. And here, uh, the judge said, and this is a good, uh, clear uh, conclusion, I completely agree with the plaintiff's submissions <laughs> in that regard. Uh, and it was uh, clear that he provided this uh, money to purchase the first home, which got sold, to then purchase the second home, and so on and so forth, to the third condominium, right? Mm. Yes, And the judge uh, concluded that, uh, indeed, uh, the law uh, with respect to a gratuitous transfer of property presumes there to be a resulting trust, and a trust is sort of an equitable concept. Um, and as a result, the judge concluded that, indeed, uh, the, uh, pers- the, the spouse who passed away was not the benefit beneficiary of a $100,000 gift 17 years earlier. She was effectively holding these three properties uh, in trust, half of it belonging to the uh, male spouse, right? Hmm. Um, and the result of that uh, is that even though these had gone through these various properties with one being sold and purchasing the next one and so on, and even though they were all registered in her name alone, uh, the uh, result was that uh, there is a resulting trust for half of the value of the condominium. One of the interesting arguments made by the daughters trying to keep the whole thing um, was arguing that he shouldn't be able to make this claim because uh, he was complicit in her defrauding their father mm. <laughs> right, by deliberately hiding the fact that they were cohabitating. Mm. Uh, for example, saying that he was single yeah. on a tax return. The judge had no time for that and said, no, he wasn't trying to hide it at all, uh, and that's not a basis to deny this. So the result is, at the end of the day, um, the daughters have to either purchase his half interest or the property goes up for sale, 
uh, and he'll get half the proceeds. So equity to the rescue. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking during the second half of our second hour every Thursday. Thank you as always. Thanks so much. Have a great day. All right. Quick break. News is next.